Well, we're approaching the end of our series on God's sovereignty and your salvation, but we're still in Luke 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 10, which is our launch pad text for the series. In John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful are traveling to the celestial city when they encounter a man called Ignorance. Bunyan writes this. They met with a very brisk lad that came out of that country and his name was Ignorance. So Christian asked him from what parts he came and where he was going. Sir, I was born in a country that lies over there a little off to the left and I'm going to the celestial city. But how do you think to get in the gate? For you may find some difficulty there. As other good people do, he said. But what have you to show at the gate? That the gate should be opened to you. I know my Lord's will. I have been a good person. I pay my debts. I pray. I fast. I pay tithes. I give alms. And have left my country for where I am going. But you did not come in at the narrow gate. That is at the head of this way. You came in over there through that crooked lane. And therefore I fear, however you might think of yourselves, when the reckoning day shall come, you will have laid to your charge that you are a thief and a robber instead of getting admittance into the city. Gentlemen, you are utter strangers to me. I do not know you be content to follow the religion of your own country and I will follow the religion of mine. I hope all will be well. And as for the gate that you talk of, all the world knows that it is a great distance from our country. I cannot think that any man in our parts knows the way to it. Or do they need to be concerned that they do or not? Since we have, as you see, a fine, pleasant green lane that comes down from our country and runs besides this way. And when Christian saw that the man was wise in his own conceit, he said to Hopeful in a whisper, There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs twenty six twelve, And said, Moreover, When a fool walks by the way, his wisdom fails him and everyone sees that he is a fool. Ecclesiastes 10.3. And so it is with many people in the world. They are ignorant. They think they're going to heaven, but they're not. I've done quite a few sermons or funerals, uh, funeral sermons for people who don't know the Lord. And before and after I talk with people, these are people who never went to church, people who never read their Bible, people who had no devotion to God. And yet when people, their family, their friends come up, they talk about, oh, them being in a better place. That these people are now in a good place. They're now in heaven. They're now with Jesus. I have never heard anyone ever say at a memorial service or a funeral, well, we need to mourn this person because now they're in hell. It is as if heaven is open to all, but just the most brutal serial killers. Yet the exact opposite is true, as we have learned. Jesus himself said the gate is narrow and the way to heaven is is this 
narrow way and few are those who find that gate. Jesus made it clear that very many religious people, people who are convinced they are going to heaven, will not end up there, but in hell. And why is that? Why is that? It's because they, like Bunyan's ignorance, are themselves ignorant of the truth. They have gotten their gospel from Hollywood, from the media, from stereotypes of how people are to get to heaven, but not from the Bible. They have the false but popular notion that people are for the most part good. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds in the balance of God's justice, you will get in because after all, you're not that bad. Yet this is a false notion that men are saved by being good or pretty good or better than a serial killer. But as we have seen in previous weeks, men are not good. Men are sinners. Men have fallen short of God's holy perfection. The wrath of God abides on them because God demands justice for every offense that is committed. And that is why we were doing this series on God's sovereignty and your, your salvation. We only have one more week to go, I'm sorry to say, but we have to move on. Otherwise, we'll ne- never finish Luke. But in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, the reason that we're, we're looking at this passage and kind of using it as a launch pad for God's sovereignty and salvation is because this text shows in three distinct ways that God is in absolute control of who is and who isn't saved. And so follow along as I read verses 21 through 24, and we'll go from there. At that very time, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your, or blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What has happened here is the disciples, the 70 disciples, have been sent out by Jesus to tour around the country to go to cities where Jesus is going to come to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. And they come back, and they're really excited, but they're not excited that they got to preach the gospel. They're not excited that people actually got saved. What they're excited about is the demons are subject to them, and so Jesus says, don't be excited about that. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And then he says what we just read. And Jesus himself begins to rejoice. And he rejoices in three specific things that tell us God is sovereign in salvation. One, God hides the truth from certain people so they can't be saved. Two, God reveals the truth to some people so they can be saved. And three, that the only way to know the Father is if Jesus wills for it to happen all these three statements in this text show us that god is sovereign in salvation now the problem is though as we have discussed already and if you weren't here you're just gonna have to go back and listen on the website or get the cds 
that when you start talking about God's sovereignty and salvation, people begin to say, well, wait a second now. If God is absolutely sovereign, if he is in complete control, then what about me? What about me having to believe? What about being fair? I mean, what about being just? I mean, it just doesn't seem right. Why witness? Why pray? And so in the last six weeks, we have attempted to answer many of those questions. And specifically in relationship to God, after we saw that all how men were created, how they are sinners, how they are depraved and the consequences of sin and the barriers inside and outside of men that keep them from salvation and even wanting to come to God for salvation. We learned that God in eternity past predestined and elected those who would be saved. We saw that. We looked at many texts on that. Salvation depends on God choosing us before the foundation of the world, and no one will ever be saved unless that happens. Secondly, we also learned that at the proper time, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, a virgin, born under the law, and Jesus lived a perfect life, willingly offered himself up to die, was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. I don't care what happens, you cannot get saved unless God does that for you. And third, we learn that men must repent of their sins and believe in the gospel message that Jesus died, buried, and rose again, and that only by believing in him that we are saved. And if that does not happen, you can't be saved. So God is in charge of the whole foundation and groundwork of anybody ever being saved. Then this creates a paradox. Because the scriptures say there are none who seek God, not even one. Now, if you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved and yet no one seeks God, that's a problem. It's also a problem since if you know Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, if you have been saved, you know in your heart that you saw God and you were saved. And yet the scriptures say no one seeks him. And so people look at that and go, well, wait a second here. Does the, is the Bible contradicting itself? No. We learned that the Bible is teaching us that no one on their own, unaided by the grace of God, seeks Jesus. No one. And we learned that people who don't know Christ are dead in their sins They love darkness rather than light. They will not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. They can't understand the truth. They can't please God. They don't want to come to Christ. And that's where they're at. Not only that is Satan and the world is all against them, outside of them, trying to hinder them from coming to Christ. And we looked all that in great detail so that the question is, then how can anyone ever get saved? If no one's seeking God, then how come all these Christians have sought God and been saved? And we gave six answers last week. First, because God supplies the saving grace and mercy to them. Secondly, because the Father draws sinners, unwilling sinners, to Christ. Third, because the Holy Spirit illumines them to the truth of the gospel so they can understand the truth. Fourth, because God grants unbelievers saving faith. 
Five, because God grants sinners repentance. And six, because God regenerates sinners and causes them to be born again. So, it is true that a spiritually dead, unwilling sinner, when the grace of God comes upon them, is overwhelmed, their mind is enlightened, they're spiritually quickened from the dead, and they actually want to believe of their own will. They actually see it as the only sane thing to do. It's the only logical thing to do. Now that God has overridden sin and its negative effects and pushed Satan and pushed the world aside so they can see the truth, they go, oh yeah, I want that. And so of their own will, freed up, repaired by the grace of God, they believe and are saved. And that's how it works. But this is still not the end of the story when it comes to God's sovereignty and salvation. As we will see this week and next. For at the time of salvation... Or as a consequence of salvation, God continues to sovereignty work in other ways. In fact, an entire chain of sovereign events occur that happen to save and to keep people saved. So for this morning, I want to address four of them. Four sovereign actions that God performs as a consequence or in response to saving Sinners. Now you need to know that these truths will bring you great encouragement if you're a believer. And they will motivate you to be thankful because they are incredible. Keep in mind, we're talking about believers now. People who have been predestined, drawn by God's grace, who have repented of their sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, been born again, whatever you want to say. That's who we're talking about. And if you're not saved, if you don't know Christ, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, then this is something that could be true of you. Realize that any of these four sovereign works of God I'm about to address this morning could be an entire series of sermons. It is so tempting to do an entire series of sermons. I love this stuff. But what I'm going to do... It's just hit each one, kind of explain it in a clear, understandable way, do a couple key references, and then we're going to have to move on and close up shop. But trying to do this creates a problem. Have you ever um, had, you know, like a new shirt or, you know, some new garment, and you see this little thread hanging out? One time I remember uh, I had this new tie, and there was this little, like, little tiny microscopic you know, thread thing sticking out the end of the tie, and I thought, I'm getting rid of that. And so I just grabbed it like this and went, and my tie just kind of like wadded up. And, um, and I'm like, oh, oh. So I you know, tried to do this. I had this real nasty snag all the way down it. And that was because that thread was interwoven and connected to all of this other stuff all the way up my tie. Well, in the same way, when you start talking about doctrines related to salvation, they're all kind of woven together in this salvation tapestry. And if you just grab one of the strings and go, let's look at this one. And what happens is it creates a big snarl. And it's very difficult. You have to be very artificial in trying to explain one of the time. The problem is, is, is I'm unable to explain all the pieces at one time. And so I have to kind of separate them. But I want you all to know that all of the doctrines we're going to talk about this morning and even more, um, the ones we're going to talk about next week and ones that we're not even going to mention, they all kind of relate together, are inextricably connected to one another, and they're all part of what is very important for people to know about salvation. 
And so just keep that in mind. Now, the first thing we want to talk about is that God sovereignly justifies you. He sovereignly justifies you. You're at work one day. It's lunchtime. Your stomach's growling. You're thinking, I'm hungry. So you pop open your wallet and you think, oh, I don't have any cash. I got a credit card, but I want to go to my favorite little, you know, hole in the wall food stand. And they don't take credit cards. So you go out and you get a gun out of your car. You walk over to the bank and you start shooting people. And the reason you do that is you know they're not going to just hand you the money. I know this is kind of grisly, but bear with me. After slaughtering the people in the bank, you crawl over, you open the teller drawer and you get $10 out for lunch. You walk out the bank door, your gun's smoking, you've got your 10 bucks in your hands, and about that time, the police arrive. They put you under arrest. You're sent to jail. You appear before the judge, and you are guilty. Yeah, I like it. Is it kind of icky when something like that happens? They say in the news, you know, somebody is accused of. Um, it's like, well, no, duh. <laughs> the guy's guilty. I mean, the cameras got him from eight angles, you know, robbing and shooting. People, witnesses, first-hand witnesses saw him go into the bank with a gun. First-hand witnesses saw him come out of the bank with the smoking gun and the $10. Some of the people he shot didn't die, and they can testify, that's the guy who shot me. And not only that, you admit it, I did it, I needed lunch money. Okay? This is how it is. With everyone before an infinite, perfectly holy God. He sees you, he sees me, and says, guilty. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you deserve not only to die physically, but you deserve the second death, a synonym for the lake of fire. Why? Because even at birth, we are sinners in Adam. The scriptures say his sin and guilt was reckoned or imputed to us. So we're born sinners. And then when we grow up, we sin because we are sinners. So we're not only guilty because of what he did, we're guilty because of what we do. We're doubly sinners. And since God is all-knowing, since he knows everything, he doesn't need any lawyers. He doesn't need any cameras. He doesn't need any expert witnesses. His mind knows all. All. He knows everything about you and knows every evil thought and deed, everything you've ever done that has been contrary to his perfect holy nature. And that makes you guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is nothing you can do to bribe God. There's nothing you can do to try and weasel your way out. You can't hire any lawyers. You can't try and do good enough deeds to override your bad ones. His justice is infinite. And the scriptures say he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished, but he will demand that every sin be punished to its nth degree. He is going to crush you under the weight of his omnipotent wrath and fury for all eternity because his justice says it must happen. However, there is this loophole a very desperate loophole in the law of God. 
And what this loophole says is, now, if somebody's guilty, my justice has to be satisfied. Somebody's got to pay. And I am willing to receive a substitute. There is the law of substitution in the law of God. And why is it desperate? Because all you need is a perfect person who has never sinned in thought or deed all their life. And that perfect person needs to be willing to suffer the wrath of God on behalf of the guilty person. And people like that are hard to find. (laughs) But God says, if someone like that could be found, and if that person could obey me perfectly, then I would be willing, if they're willing, to suffer my wrath and judgment to set you free and cause you to be just before me and you would be justified. The reason this is such a desperate situation is, as I explained earlier, the scriptures teach that we're not only sinners because we sin, we're sinners because we're sinners in Adam. His sin and guilt is imputed to us because we are descended from Adam and he was the ultimate sinner. The whole human race is cursed. So you would have to get somebody who didn't have a human father. And that's why the virgin birth happened. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. So that Adam's sin nature would not be imputed or reckoned to Jesus. So that he could be born 100% God, 100% man, having no sin nature passed down so he could live a perfect life. So he could willingly offer himself up as a substitute So the guilty party is then justified before God when the perfect person is willing and of their own will to suffer the judgment and penalty that the guilty person deserved. And when that happens, God at a moment declares the guilty person just. Now it does not mean that the person never sinned. They sinned. And it doesn't mean that they're now perfect. They're not perfect. But what it does mean is that because they place their faith in Jesus, God is willing to declare them as if they were just. Because Jesus paid the penalty on their behalf. Because justification is a legal declaration that one is just before God, it is often described as forensic. You know, we watch shows maybe that, you know, talk about forensics or whatever. And forensic describes that which is um, legally binding in a court of law. And so what justification says is, is because Jesus suffered and paid the penalty, God legally before his court of one person himself declares this person to be just, holy, or right because Jesus stood in as the substitute. And justification is amazing not only because of the sin of the sinner being placed on Jesus and there being declared just, but also because the scriptures teach that Jesus... God then takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and imputes it or reckons to the account of that guilty sinner. That is what's cool. 
And let's just look at a couple texts. And I just want you to know there's tons of this in the New Testament. We're just going to look at a couple little ones. The first is Romans chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Turn there, Romans 4, verses 5 and 6. I just want you to know that if you want to read a lot about justification, you can read Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through 521, because it all talks about justification by faith. But in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read this. But to the one who does not work. Now just stop there. Notice that justification is not about you doing anything. This is the sovereign work that God does. But to the one who does not work, but believes or has faith in him, that is Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the law. Notice here, we have somebody who isn't doing any work. This person is described as ungodly. This ungodly person places their faith in Jesus and their faith in Jesus is credited, imputed, reckoned, however you want to say it. As righteousness. And then just so you know at the very end. Apart from works. You you can't do anything. Now turn over to Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3. And this is really great. Philippians chapter 3. Here Paul talks about his privilege. And if you don't know anything about Paul. I mean Paul was like the ultimate candidate for salvation. If it could be by you know, anything in us. Uh, he talks about his privileged nationality, you know, the Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, I was trained by Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis that ever was. And you talk about, you know, the right religious connections. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had zeal. I persecuted the church of God. Man, according to law, man, I obeyed perfectly. And then after saying and just kind of laying out his whole religious pedigree, he says this, starting in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You're going, really? I mean, those things didn't kind of, you know, grease the your entrance into heaven? No. I count them as loss. More than that, I count all things to be loss. Anything I didn't mention is loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, you know, manure that I may have Christ to stop there. He's just saying, I don't care what it is. I don't care what I've done. I don't care what my heritage is, my training is, my works are. I take all of that stuff and I dump it when it comes to salvation. You, you, you can't. Salvation is not of you. It's of God. Look at verse 9. And he says, I, I want to gain Christ that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Well, then, Paul, if you can't be good enough to get to heaven, then where do you get your righteousness? Here it is. But that which is through faith In Christ, the righteousness which comes, notice the direction here, from God on the basis of faith. 
Righteousness which comes from God. Whose righteousness is that? Jesus's. When he justifies you, he not only takes your sin, he gives you the righteousness of Christ is given to you from God. And that makes you declared perfect in God's sight in Christ. God causes sinners to be justified. He makes the sinner right with himself. And this should make you eternally grateful and cause you to praise God incessantly. The holy God justifies ungodly, helpless sinners. Secondly, God sovereignly reconciles you to himself. Now, this is inseparably separately related to justification, this whole idea of reconciliation. You know, we've all had times when, you know, you get in an argument with somebody, maybe, you know, a neighbor, a family member, spouse, you know, whatever, the guy with the yappy dog next door. You get in this relationship thing and there's kind of a rift in the relationship and it's strained and conversation is difficult or non-existence. And, you know, divorce is, is one of those cases where two people start fighting and arguing, fighting and arguing. Pretty soon one of them files and what do they put down? The most common reason is irreconcilable differences, which really means I am unwilling or and unable to re- be reconciled with you. That is, I cannot be your friend anymore. So the word reconciliation or to reconcile literally means to change or exchange. You know, let's just say that, uh, you know, you're, you go down to the tool place because you want the, the green and black laser sided Hitachi sliding compound miter. You, you want that. But they just don't give those away. You have to fork out the cash. You fork out the cash and you give it to the guy. And then he's willing to give you the saw. If you give him the cash, you have to make an exchange. Now, once he's got his money and you got your saw, you're reconciled. That's what that word means. And in the Bible, men in their fallen sin cursed state don't want to be reconciled to God. And so God, by his sovereign grace, if we have learned, intervenes so that men then want to be reconciled and they are able to be reconciled because somebody came in and paid the price so the sinner could be right with God. And it wasn't you. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Again, we just can only look at a couple texts in each of these. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm just going to do a little quick commentary as we go through here, just so you can kind of see how reconciliation works and how it's even tied in very closely with justification. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, now that is a key term there. Helpless. Now, what that means in the Greek is helpless. <laughs> While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice that God takes the initiative in sending Christ to die for the ungodly. The ungodly doesn't do something towards Christ. Christ does something for the ungodly. Verse 7. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. Notice the direction. In that while we were yet sinners, now we've been described as helpless, ungodly sinners. Christ died for us. We don't deserve to have God seek to be reconciled to us, but he takes the initiative. He sends his son. Christ dies for us. He moves towards us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God makes us right, justifies us through the death of Christ. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So now we are helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his Life. Here we see that our justification included reconciliation. It repaired the rift, the broken relationship that people have with God. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We just praise God. And this is one of the responses you should have. There's something wrong with the Christian who's just, you know, walks around, you know, with... A lamentations frontispiece type of look on their face. Just moping. No joy. That is to deny that God has been extremely good to you. And has reached out towards you and reconciled you to himself through the death of his son. If you're a Christian, you're around Christians who love the Lord. They're saying, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, God is so good. God is so kind when they pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for having Christ die for my sins. Thank you for reconciling me to yourself. There's just a constant. That's one of the responses that this is one of the applications of knowing this doctrine. It should cause you to praise God. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17. You might be wondering if praising God and being thankful is our only response to being reconciled to God. The answer is no. There is another important application. And I want you to look at verse 17 here. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Here... Paul is talking about regeneration or being born again. He's talking about being transformed. You know, you take a junky car and you put a lot of money and effort into it and you kind of re- re- regenerate it. Um, that's what happens. You have a sinner and when God's grace invades their life, he causes them to be rebuilt, regenerated. Uh, scriptures call it being born again. Verse 18, now all these things are from God. Notice the direction here. This is the sovereign work of God. Our salvation, our being changed into new creatures is from God's sovereign work, not ours, who reconciled us to himself through our good works. No, through Christ. Now watch this and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the whole process of justification in verse 21. Jesus is made sin on our behalf. He is the one who dies in our place so that we can become the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness given to us, our sin being put on Christ. And that causes us and allows us to be reconciled to God. And then we can be a friend of God. But the second application here is this. When you know You're reconciled to God. That should make you want to see other people reconciled to God. You're going for a walk one, you know, early Friday morning before work and it's nice outside. It's cool and you're walking along and all of a sudden you walk by this house and you see all of this furniture. It's really nice furniture and stuff out in the driveway and it goes into a garage full of tools. And um, you're, you're looking, you're going, whoa, and the front door's open and there's an arrow that says the whole house goes. And you ask the person, what's going on here? Say, like, well, we're having a estate sale and just everything is like premium. There's, you know, the science is museum quality, furniture and artwork. Um, all must go. And you start looking at the prices and you think, whoa, whoa. And you see that, man, this is a deal. This is a really good deal. So what do you do? Then you pull out your cell phone and you start calling people. Why? Because you want them to get in on the blessing. Well, something better than the estate sales here. And that is being reconciled to God. And, and I think sometimes we're more excited about the estate sale than being reconciled to God. There's a way to be reconciled with your creator, with the God of the universe. And it's through the death of his son. And so if you're sitting out there going, okay, what do I need to do? Well, you need to realize that you have been committed with the ministry of reconciliation so that you can help bring other people to Christ. In 1 Peter 3.18, I love this passage. Peter, speaking of our salvation in Christ, says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just For the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Now, the word reconciliation isn't used there, but that's the concept. Bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, the resurrection. Jesus died and rose again to bring people to God, to reconcile them to God. So Jesus is the key, and Jesus is the sovereign expression of a loving God. To save those who are beyond the hope of being saved. Third, God sovereignly redeems you. Redemption is another term that literally describes a monetary transaction. And there are three basic words in the New Testament that are used, uh, uh, translated redemption. The first term means to purchase from the marketplace, literally in just its basic Greek meaning. And this is agarazo. Just means to purchase. For instance, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 7.23 when he speaks of believers being bought with a price. You know, it was as if they were purchased from the marketplace. 
Paul uses the term in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 as he's talking about immorality and he's telling people to abstain from immorality and he's giving all these 12 reasons why we should abstain from immorality and at the very end he says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, you've been purchased. Of course it wasn't from the marketplace. It was from the wrath of God who demands that sin be punished. The second word is is a similar word. It's actually the same word, agarazo, with an X in front of it. An X prefix, X agarazo, which means to purchase from something. And Paul uses this term in Galatians 3.13 where he describes the believer as being redeemed from the curse of the law. You know how it is. You don't want to get something. You're in the department store. You don't have the money and say, do you, can I put this on layaway? It used to be really popular. Now we just give them visa, but, um, you used to have layaway and they'll say, yeah, we will hold this for seven days. And then if you want whatever that is, you put on layaway, you got to come back and ex garazzo, get that thing out of hock, get it back, purchase it back. The final word that is used to describe redemption is lutrao, which is to obtain release by a payment of price. All these are closely related. Paul uses this term in Titus 2.14 where he says this. Speaking of the grace of God which saves people says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed... And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That term there, to redeem us, is lutrao. The sovereign grace of God works to release people from the punishment of sin. God is not only the one who demands the punishment, but he's the only one who can release them from punishment through the death of Christ. Because Christ paid the penalty. When he suffered and died on the cross. And one of my favorite texts is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. Where Peter reminds believers saying. Knowing that you are not redeemed. You're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But here it is. What did it cost? How were you redeemed? What was the purchase? But with Precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, there's times when evil men take hostages. Maybe there's some rich person, they they snag some, you know, daughter or some son and take them hostage. And they may leave a ransom note. And if the father or the mother want their child back, they need to redeem their child from captivity. They need to pay the price to set their child free. The price paid to the kidnappers is called a ransom. Now, there's also a Greek word. Just so happens that is translated ransom. And it is that same lutrao word with anti in front of it. Anti, meaning in the place of, lutrao, purchase by payment of price. You know, we have the word Christ, right? And we have the word Antichrist. What is, what, who is the Antichrist? One who is in place 
of Christ, right? He is the pseudo Christ, the supplanter Christ, the one who has come into the place of Christ to deceive people. He is the anti Christ, the in place of Christ. Well, here you have this word to redeem by payment of price with anti in front of it. That means that which you give in place of what you want. And this is what Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where he says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom, an anti-lutron, to stand in the place of for all. That he gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. E.W. Vines, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words commenting on this text, points out that the phrase, a ransom for all, makes it clear that the ransom Christ paid is provisionally universal. Which means that the death of Christ is sufficient to save all men. Then he goes on to say, quote, the provision was universal for Christ died for all men. Yet it is actual for those only who accept God's conditions and who are described in the gospel statements as the many or you could say the few. It is only by a sovereign act of God that anyone can be reconciled. We do not seek to be reconciled to God. God seeks to be reconciled to us. And then once he does, we respond to his grace. Fourth and finally, God sovereignly atones for your sin. I just want you to know, atonement is this huge area of discussion and debate in theological circles and has been for years. In fact, I'm doing a series on it in the Calvary Review, and I don't know how long. It'll probably take me a whole year to get through it. But there are so many interesting little facets here that have to do with the atonement. And really, when you start reading, you know, you start reading books and papers and things on it. And for many, the debate is about John Calvin and what he taught. John Calvin being the French reformer who is, you know, one of the major people in the Reformation. And you know what, John Calvin, we need to thank God for John Calvin. I mean, John Calvin was used by God in an incredible way. Um, He systematized theology. He helped get the Reformation going. He was a faithful biblical expositor, but... He was neither a perfect interpreter of scripture, nor was he inspired. And people who want to be Calvinites, people who want to maintain the reformed tradition, people who want to be in a certain camp, people who, want, who are more concerned about a creed or their heritage or whatever, often argue about what he taught instead of going to the book. And in their mind, the goal is to maintain an association rather than seek out the truth. And I think for the problem with the atonement is a failure to ask the right questions. When I talk to people about the atonement, a lot of times they haven't even considered some of the key issues involved. And you know what? It's a very minor thing that we in our feeble, finite, sin-cursed minds can't synthesize all the texts and make them into a nice, tidy package. That's not a problem. But what is a huge problem is if we don't go to the book and the book alone to find our truth. And that we study, that we look up passages in their context, and we say what 
The text says what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written, regardless of the system. Change the system. Make the system submit to the scriptures. Never the scriptures submit to the system. A husband's working on his car. He's uh, he's working on his car. He's crawling all over. He's getting really thirsty. He's hot in the garage. And so he comes in the house and he gets a cup and he stands in front of the refrigerator and drinks about three glasses in a row. Sets the glass down on the counter and he starts to go. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees something. He looks down there and there's a grease on the floor because it was on his shoe. And he looks around and he sees there's a little area rug in front of the kitchen sink. And so he goes over there and he grabs that and he brings it over and he drags it and covers up the grease. And he goes, there. And he goes back to working on the car. He has covered the smudge, the grease. Now, this is kind of the concept that happens with atonement in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God required people to offer animal sacrifices which covered their sin. But it didn't make them perfect. It just covered their sin. Now, God was willing to accept them based on their sacrifice, but not because the sacrifices of bulls and goats made them perfect, but because they represented a future sacrifice that would occur, the sacrifice of Christ, which could make them perfect. Jesus offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice, and this is mentioned In a lot of places in the scripture, especially in the book of Hebrews, and if you study the book of Hebrews, you'll find lots about this in chapter 7 through 10. And in chapter 9, as you look at Hebrews chapter 9, and you just go through there, I wish I could, I wish we could go through the whole thing, but in verses 11 and 12, this is what we read in Hebrews 9 verses 11 and 12, and just listen. It's speaking of Christ, and it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, the high priest was the one who on the day of atonement would sacrifice the bull, take the blood into the holy of holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the ark of the covenant. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Oh, that's interesting. It's hard to find tabernacles not made with hands. And he goes on to explain what he means. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves. So he's saying Jesus, as a high priest, entered into a heavenly tabernacle. And he came not with the blood of animals, but he says, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus enters in and made with his own blood, what the author of Hebrews calls, having obtained eternal redemption. The author of Hebrews later makes it perfectly clear that animals wouldn't cut it because he says down in, in, in verse chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year to cover their sins, make perfect those who draw near. And in case you didn't get that, he goes on to say in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, do you got it? 
You cannot atone for the sin of a person with an animal. You have to find a perfect person who is willing to die in the place of a sinner. It is only then that God will accept that sacrifice and atone for your sins. And then it's not covered. Your sin is eradicated. It is washed away. You are made white as snow. You are as perfect as you can be because there is perfect atonement. Now, that's the easy part. Then you got people, when you start reading about it, start talking about a lot of different things. I'm just going to raise these questions to you. Because a lot of people want to just kind of come down on a camp and yet they haven't even asked themselves and answered these questions from the scriptures. One, what is the scope of the atonement? Two, what about the definiteness of the atonement? Three, what about limited aspects of the atonement? Four, what about the intent of the atonement? I mean, God's intention of the atonement. Five, What about the power and sufficiency of the atonement? Six, what is the difference between payment and atonement? Seven, what is the difference between provision and the application of a provision, which is atonement? Eight, what is the important distinction between these two phrases? Jesus died to save... And Jesus died for. And it would also be fun to look at texts that teach that Jesus died for some, the elect. And to look at texts which teach that Jesus died for all, but when you look at the context, all means some. And it would be fun to look at texts where it says Jesus died for all, where all means all every each. And it would also be good to look at the implications of a universal offer of the gospel to all men. The gospel including atonement for sins available to those who believe. And to look at the implications of God condemning unbelievers for rejecting the gospel. A legitimate offer of salvation that they did not receive the love of the truth is to be saved. Now, you answer those questions, then you'll start approaching what needs to be answered in order to come up with your view of the atonement. That's why we're not going to go into any more here. But, having said that, let me just give you three little simple facts which are going to help you sort through this. And again, I'm sorry that we can't go through all those questions, but the Calvary Review in the months to come will deal with it. One, Christ's death made provision for the sins of the world and is universal in its strength and ability to save all men. Two, the gospel is to be preached to all men. And the gospel offers all men salvation through the death of Christ, who died for the sins of the world, every each person. Third, it is the elect and the elect only who receive atonement for sins. No one ever goes to hell having their sins perfectly washed away. Otherwise, there would be no area, no reason for condemnation. They would be perfect in God's sight. Now, you think through that and uh, study it up and then you'll 
begin to understand why there's disagreements in the atonement. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned John Bunyan's allegorical character, Ignorance. And I mentioned him for one reason. Ignorance is portrayed as the kind of person who doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Remember, he came his own way. He was trusting in his own good works and good deeds and good heritage and philanthropy. And then he went on his own path, which pretty brought him to the same place. And at the very end of the book, in the last paragraph of the book, Christian hopeful have just gone through the river of death and they've waded in there and Christian has almost sunk, but he found solid footing when he remembered the promises of God and he came out and his dirty armor fell off and it floated across the other side and he was clothed in white raiments and the angels came and they carried him to the gate of the city and there was shouts and applause and they opened the gates. It's like when you're reading, it's like, oh yeah. And then the very last paragraph, Bunyan writes this. Now, while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside. But he soon got over and that without half the difficulty, which the other two men had met with. For it happened that there was then in that place one Mr. Vainhope, a ferryman that with his boat helped him over. So he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate. Only he came alone. Neither did any man meet him with the least encouragement. And when he was come up to the gate, he looked up to the writing that was above and then began to knock, supposing that the entrance should have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, where do you come from and what do you want? He answered, I have ate and drank in the presence of the king and he has taught in our streets. Then they asked him for his certificate that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his pockets for one, but found none. Then they said, have you none? But the man did not answer them a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian and hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and cast him away. And they took him up and carried him through the air to the door I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gate of heaven, as well as from the city of destruction. So I awoke and behold, it was a dream. That is scary. And that's how Bunyan ends the story. And his whole point in ending with that is to make sure that anybody who read that book would not be ignorant into thinking that they could save themselves by their works, their creed, their religiosity, or anything else they do. And that you can be extremely religious and still get to hell when you think you're on your way to heaven. And so if you're sitting out there this morning and you're realizing, I don't know Jesus... I don't love God. I don't love God's word. I don't love God's people. Then today is the day of salvation. You can come to Christ now. You can turn from your sins. You can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it and God will save you. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That he was buried. That he rose again 
on the third day so that you through faith in him could be justified, could be reconciled, could be redeemed, could have your sins perfectly atoned for. And this is the offer that God gives to you. And if you believe in your heart that this is true and you are willing to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, God will do his part. As a matter of fact, he will have already been doing his part. And for those of you who know Christ already, when you leave here, you need to be thankful. You need to be rejoicing. And you need to be telling other people how they can be reconciled to God. For you, all of us who know Christ are ambassadors for Christ. And we are called to go out and tell people about the good deal. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for just this morning again. I thank you for these people who have endured the sweltering heat. And Father, we are grateful for all the Sundays where the air conditioning wasn't broken. We are thankful, Father, for your kindness to us and that it wasn't as hot as today as it has been in earlier days this summer. We're also thankful that you sovereignly justify, reconcile, redeem, and atone for unworthy sinners. And you do it because you are a God of grace and mercy. Father, for those who don't know you, may they cry out to you now in their heart. May they receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For the rest... May we leave here rejoicing, exulting in you, praising you, and eager to let other people know how they too can be reconciled to God. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple things. If you are a visitor with us this morning, you can go out to the visitor's table. And it's hotter out there than it is.